Ephesians, or rather, 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3. Defending Christ's return. Let's look to the Lord for His wisdom as we get into this chapter, shall we? Thank you, Father, for declaring to us truth from Your Word, giving us a tangible expression of that. We would know what Your thoughts and Your desires for us are. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to know what to look forward to because You have expressed all that we need to know. So, Lord, I pray that as we delve into this new chapter, that we would have the Spirit of God's insight and wisdom guiding us, instructing us, and then making application to us that we would walk rightly with you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read uh, the first 10 verses of this so we have the context of this chapter as we get into it. 2 Peter beginning, verse 1, verse chapter 3. Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that when uh, existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this... One thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Well, we talk a little bit about soberness and then some hallelujahs, and this is a little sobering, isn't it? Everything that we've designed and created and built and amassed will all just disappear in that fervent heat. It'll be gone. What are you spending your time doing, huh? <laughs> That's sobering. Well, in the second chapter of Second Peter... He gave us this graphic description of the immoral license that was being taken as well as those that loved money and those that set themselves up as authority, rejecting the authority of God. These are the false prophets, the false teachers, and they, by those actions, were denying the Father, the Savior that bought them. And he warns the church very vividly that if they are enticed out of the way of righteousness, if they abandon obedience to Christ, it will be worse for them in the final judgment than if they had never known. That's a very sobering word. And I would challenge each of you and myself to evaluate our lives as we sit under the gospel, as we read the Word of God, as I teach 
These words are for us. Don't refuse to give yourself wholly to the Savior. If you don't know Him as Savior, but you have heard the Word of God, you are responsible for that. Now, in chapter 3, Peter, in part, is going back to chapter 1 in theme, namely that God has given His people precious and great promises. And if we hold those out before us, they should keep us moving towards Him, and they will help us resist temptation. That Those promises will help us remain in the way of righteousness so that we bring honor to Him and benefit to us and to those around us. And so, in verses... Uh, 13 and 14 of that chapter, we see a connection between hope, which the promise inspires, and the power for godliness, which the hope gives. Where he said, according to his promise, we wait for new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these things, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish or peace, at peace, and at, and at peace. So, Peter uh, has a theme here. Put it in your notes. You know, I don't think you even have to fill in any blanks for this one. But it's that a confident expectation of this new world, this world of righteousness, this world uh, of godliness, that is what empowers us to live for peace and purity in the world today. Knowing what He has in store guides our thoughts and our actions today. But... There are some false teachers, and these false teachers deny that that day is coming. And so you have to think, if there is a promise and Christ has said there's going to be a second coming, there's going to be this new world of joy, a, a world of righteousness, and we have hope and we have power for godliness, then we have to actually believe that it's going to happen. And the church that Peter is writing to they were filled and infiltrated by false teachers, false prophets. They did not believe what was happening. They didn't believe it was going to happen. And they were probably like 2 Timothy 2 describes, teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who taught that the resurrection of believers had already passed. Well, that would be sad, wouldn't it? What we just celebrated around the Lord's table really wouldn't mean much. Because he says, do this until the Lord comes. But if he's already come, what do we have to look forward to? Well, what they're teaching is that there's no physical bodily resurrection. There's just a spiritual resurrection. And here again, they are twisting the words of Paul. He said in Colossians 2, you were buried with him through baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. And they take that and they twist it and they say, well, since you have already been raised like Christ, then Christ did not really experience a bodily, physical resurrection, just a spiritual resurrection. And therefore, this notion that we're going to have a powerful, glorious bodily return of Christ, well, that's just a myth. And so, as they reject that glorious bodily return of Christ... The false teachers wipe away the reality of judgment for things that are done in the body. You see how convenient that is? If I can determine the doctrine, then I can determine the consequences for my actions or the non-consequences. 
that will only get you so far because reality is still reality whether I believe it or not. And it will come about on me. It will just come as more of a surprise. God's Word has spoken. And those who want to do away with consequences will be judged for those all the more. So they have created a theological basis for their indifference to immoral behavior. The body really has no moral consideration except that you can demonstrate your grace and your freedom by defying physical moral restrictions. That's where the false teachers were going. And so then Peter says, no, we've got to confront this denial. And so really all the way back in chapter 1, verse 16, he'd already taken up the offensive against the denial of the second coming when he said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That is, Christ certified to us, as it were, that he was indeed going to return in bodily glory. And he gave us that transformation preview on the, uh, at the transfiguration. And so Peter says, therefore, we have this prophetic word that the second coming is made more sure, and we should keep it before us like a lamp in a dark place until the day of his coming dawns and the day star of glory rises in our hearts. So now in these verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3, Peter confronts that denial head on. And he says in verse 2 that he wants the believers to have a sincere and lively memory. Remember. Remember. Remember, first of all, what the prophets predicted. Well, I think he had in mind verses like Malachi 4. You might jot that down, verses 1 and 2. Malachi 4, where it says, Behold, the day burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. What a picture. What an image. A heated oven. And you know what happens when you take that dry stubble little twigs and grass, and you throw that in the fire, it's gone that fast. He says, it's not. That's reserved for the ungodly. That day's going to come. But for you that walk in righteousness and know that day is going to dawn and the sun's going to rise and what an incredible glory that's going to be for you. Wings of healing. What do you want to be healed from? All got a wish list, don't we? <laughs> But then he speaks also of the commandment of the Lord in verse 2, and he probably has in view words like Matthew 24, verse 42. Jesus says, watch. That word watch implies obedience, by the way. It's not just get your binoculars out and look. It's watch with expectation, and because of that expectation, there's a certain action that follows. Watch, therefore. For you do not know what day your Lord is coming. And we ought to be found watching and waiting, anticipating, watching, prepared, not in an unprepared fashion. And so then he says in verses 3 and 4, he talks about these, these false teachers. And he says, they themselves are part of the prophetic fulfillment. 
Their presence, the fact that they are present, shows that the last days have arrived. Now, the last days in this context doesn't mean a day. And the last days really began after Jesus arose and ascended into heaven. And those are the last days because he could return at any time. In fact, many of the believers at that time thought it was imminent, immediately imminent. And and there had to be some instruction for them to, to get on with life and be busy, be productive, don't become a burden. Christ is coming, but you don't know when, so continue in life in a way that is honoring to one another and to Him. And so he says in verse 4, let let these false teachers make their case. Well, their case begins, they ask the question, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. That's really a very uh, amazingly modern argument for rejecting the supernatural bodily return of Jesus Christ. It's a a theory called uniformitarianism. I spelled it out mostly for you. I thought you could handle uniform. I went to my dictionary to find the rest of it. Uniformitarianism seemed... He says everything is uniform. As it's been, so it will be. The laws of nature are constant. They're unchanging. The sun comes up in the morning. It goes down in the evening. It's done it every day. It will do it every day. The cycles of of, uh, the seasons, they follow one another just as they always have. The tide comes in. The tide goes out in a uniform fashion. It's done it for thousands of years in perfect order. Therefore, we can expect this same constancy to continue in the future. And any thought that the sky might be rolled up like a scroll, like we just sang a few moments ago, and the earth purged with a global fiery judgment by the return of Christ, well, that is unimaginable and it is unwarranted. That's what the false teachers are saying in this theory of uniformitarianism. And that's exactly the position of many modern science teachers and, unfortunately, also many theologians and pastors in pulpits. They reject the physical coming of Christ. They reject future judgment. But Peter responds to this skepticism in three ways. Look at verses 5 to 7. He says, they deliberately ignore this fact. There's a fact to be exposed here. Uh, That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and an earth formed out of water, and by means of water through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So the first thing that Peter responds with is that God creates and God sustains or upholds by His word. The world was made by God. God spoke and the world became. He ex nihilo out of nothing. 
It was just the Word of God that spoke. And the very magnitude of His power meant that it came into being. It was obedient to His, ver- his voice. And the fact that the world and all the universes are sustained, it is again by His Word. They don't go in their cycles of their own accord. They go in accordance to the will of God in His spoken Word. And Peter's simply saying, you know, if you're willing to think about this, you would realize that the course of natural events is no more locked into one pattern than God is. God is free to speak a new word. And then nature is free to change. So we need to guard ourselves against this pseudo-scientific notion that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. The laws of nature are subject to the whims of God. And if God should choose to raise His voice, cataclysm will come. Now, another thing the false teachers ignore is that things have not continued as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter argues here, much like he did back in chapter 2, uh, verses 5 to 9, he gets on this little roll and he starts showing all these realities. God brought judgment on the world in the flood of Noah's day. Do you remember that cataclysm, he says? A great upheaval in the natural flow of events. And God has shown, therefore, that He can and He will alter the course of history in judgment. In the past, He did it with water. In the future, He's going to do it with fire. And it will happen at the coming of Christ. If the false teachers were so blinded by their own desires, they could not see it. It is folly to them. It's folly to deny the future cataclysm of Christ's coming just because the course of this world has gone on for a long time. Not reason to think that God will not alter that. Well, the second response to the false teacher comes in verse 8. He says, But do not be ignorant of this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What is time to God? Peter's answering the criticism that Christ is delayed for so long, so he's forgot about us. Can't believe that he's really coming back. I mean, he hasn't yet, and it's been this many years. How could we expect him to come back now? And his answer is that from God's vantage point, time is irrelevant. God is immortal. God does not age. God does not forget God sees all of history at a glance. God is never bored. So, very clearly, God does not experience time like you and I experience time. Which brings an interesting thought because we are created in the image of God, so some aspect of God and His time is built into us, I believe. Let me explain it this way. Age affects how we view time, doesn't it? How many seven-year-olds are already looking forward to their birthday or Christmas, and it's only March? And Christmas will just never come. It's taking so long. 
All right, you those in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and now 60s or 70s. Christmas was when? Yesterday? It'll be here tomorrow. And the word we use is before you know it. Why? Well, because age makes time move faster. I'm convinced of it. I brought my first child home from the hospital just about a couple weeks ago. He's going to be 21 this summer. I'm not going to be that old, but he is. Right? The older you get, the faster time flies. Well, let me describe it another way that maybe you would understand for especially those that are younger because they won't understand that first round, I'm sure. Have you ever been on vacation and you've had just a great time and you come home, the time is over, and you say, but Mom, we just got here. It's been two weeks. I'm ready to go home. I've been chasing you around the beach or around the whatever. I've been keeping you out of trouble. I've been keeping you alive. I've been struggling through all of this time. And you think it's all over because it just began. And you take your kids over to a friend's house. And you say, you get to be there for two hours. I'm going to come and get you. The next thing they know, you're there. And they say, but mom, I just got here. Why? Well, because joy makes time move faster. If you're bored at a program, it seems to drag on forever. Am I boring you? <laughs> but if you go on vacation, you have a great time, you come to the end, and it seems like we just got there. Every moment was full of unselfconscious life. A thousand moments just packed into one. You were taken up with the joy, the beauty, the love of the experience. And you never pause to be self-conscious about the passing of time. And at the end of those couple of weeks, it just seems like yesterday you just arrived. And now you've got to go back to the drudgery and the boredom <laughs> of life moving slow. When Jesus comes back for us and he stands on the earth, I wonder if he's going to look and say, wow, <laughs> I just left yesterday. Don't be deceived. It's no argument against Christ coming again that 1978 years have passed since he left. From God's experience, it's as though Christ arrived in heaven yesterday. He's at his right hand, and he's coming back tomorrow. Now, Peter gives one more response to these false teachers. Responding to the problem of Christ's delay in verse 9 with these words, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. But His forbearing, or maybe your version says His long-suffering or His patience, towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we could say that the Lord's patience is an expression of His mercy, the fact that he has not come back gives you an opportunity to respond to him. The Apostle Paul speaks in 11, uh, Romans 11 of the full number of the Gentiles who must come into the kingdom before the end arrives. And therefore, 
We should count the delay of God's coming as an act of mercy and patience until all the sheep are in, gathered into the fold and there is not even one lost one. That is God's desire. It's given to us as an opportunity to turn to Him in faith and repentance. And the tragic irony here is the false teachers... They take God's patience, which is giving them an opportunity to respond to Him and an opportunity to avoid judgment, and they're saying, no, not a, it's not an opportunity. This is an evidence that Christ is not coming, ultimately leading them to a greater judgment. And it's an unanswerable indictment on that judgment day when they stand before God and He asks the false teachers of Peter's day and our day, and tell me there's so many of them out there, you have to be so discerning when you turn on a TV or a radio or even read a book. Just because it shows up at the Christian bookstore doesn't mean it's worth its salt. Give you some specifics if you want. God's going to look at them and say, why did you take my gift for time to repent and make it as an argument of unbelief? The Lord is good to us. He addresses the 21st century doubts, not just the first century doubts. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Christ is coming. His delay is given to lead us to repentance, not to unbelief. And in God's mind, it's only been a few moments, a few days. And if this world, if the world order rests on the Word of God, He can and He will bring judgment on the unrepentant as surely as he did back in the days of Noah as he did in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. But for those who repent, it will mean glory, it will mean honor, it will mean immortality in the very presence of Christ where we're told at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I think eternity will seem like that. Time will fly millions of years and we'll think, we just got here because we're enjoying it so immensely. Are you ready for that return? Does His return perhaps create some uncertainty in your heart and your mind? Then you need to deal with that. Don't brush it off. Deal with the uncertainty by responding in faith to what He has said. God has given us truth so that we would respond to it. Faith is taking God at His word. It's not blind. God has spoken. He's given evidence, validity. We need to respond to it as such. Do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Have you repented of your sin that separates you from Him? Received Him into your life? Do you love Him? Do you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates? If that's not true, you can deal with it today. And in that moment, you will be ready for His return. When you receive Christ as your Savior, the free gift of eternal life, He prepares you. He makes you acceptable in the sight of God to be received into His glory when He comes. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank You that You desire for all to come to repentance, for none to perish. And so You have in patience delayed Your return 
And Lord, as we sit here contemplating that today, I pray that if there's anybody here that is not 100% confident of their eternal life, that they are ready for your return, that they would do that today. That even where they are sitting right now, they would, in the quietness of their heart, respond to you as Almighty God, saying, Dear God, I understand that I am a sinner separated from you by my sin. And I understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again, and sits at the right hand of the Father on my behalf. He offers me the gift of eternal life in a relationship with Him, and I receive that right now. By Your Spirit, transform my life. Live in me. Give me the ability to please and honor You and look forward to Your return. If that is your heart's desire expressed to God, His promise is that He will honor that. And the Spirit of God will transform your life, give you a love for the things that God loves, and He will prepare you and give you that hope and that anticipation that we've spoken of today to live in His presence for all eternity. If you've prayed that prayer, would you let me know that today before you leave? If you want to know more about praying a prayer like that, would you let me know that? Love to share with you from God's Word how you can have the confidence of eternal life that you will be prepared when He returns to meet Him not ashamed, not afraid, not with guilt, but with great anticipation. Father, thank You for Your Word that tells us how to live today and how to look forward to tomorrow, how to walk with You May it impact us as we go from here today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.